The thick cloud called a piper cub's tail. The match struck blue. We got my mother's father. slipped on his wooden fish head. The mouth worked and snapped all the bees back to the bungalow. I cried like a buyer, Veterans Day Poppy. It don't get me high. Hello and welcome to Track by Track presents Trout Mask Replica. My name is Joel Bacher. I'm guest hosting for Darren Husted. As we go track by track through Captain Beefheart and his magic bands, Adjective-defying 1969 double album Trout Mask Replica. I'm running out of synonyms for the word incredible. Uh, The track that we are discussing today is Wildlife, which is track 22. It is the second track on side four, last side of the album. This was recorded at Whitney Studios in Glendale, California, March of 1969, produced by Frank Zappa. Uh, The personnel on this track is Bill Harkelrode, a.k.a. Zutorn Rollo on guitar, Jeff Cotton, a.k.a. Antenna Jimmy Siemens on guitar, Mark Boston, a.k.a. Rocket Morton on bass, John French, a.k.a. Drumbo on drums, and Don Van Vliet, a.k.a. Captain Beefheart on vocals and saxophone. Uh, length of the track is three minutes and nine seconds. Uh, my guest today is the musician, artist, and enthusiast of the avant-garde, Atlas Ryan. Atlas, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Joel. Happy to be here. Uh, so... Uh, let's talk a little bit um, about your history with this music. What what was your first exposure to Captain Beefheart? So my first exposure to Captain Beefheart, um, like I'm sure a lot of people was, was um, an introduction through Zappa. Uh, my father was a big Zappa head. And uh, as I gained an appreciation for his music, I, of course, branched out and found the other related projects and uh, found Captain Beefheart. This was the first album that I heard by him, actually. Uh, After this was Milk, but I started with Trout Mask, and um, like has been stated by many, many other critics, even fans and friends of his, it is a very abrasive album, and um, if you're not prepared for what you're getting into, it it does sound like quite the the cacophony um, and the mess of things going on. And the first couple times I heard it, I I didn't know what I was listening to and um, definitely did not appreciate it in the same way I do now. Yeah, it's it's a grower, most most definitely. I've had a couple of people say in say that they loved it immediately. Um, I've also had other people on the show say uh, that he does not believe anyone who says that they loved it immediately. So <laughs> it, yeah, it it requires there's there's a learning curve with the album definitely. So you were you were exposed to to Zappa first. Did you hear um, any of their collaborative tracks? Did you hear uh, Beefheart on Willie the Pimp on on Hot Rats or any of the Bongo Fury album? Or did you just hear there's this guy Captain Beefheart? He was connected with Frank Zappa in some way, and you sought it out on those terms. Uh, yeah, I absolutely sought it out just as um, as his own artist. I found out there was almost uh, someone crazier than Zappa and and more avant-garde, more rule-breaking than he was. Um, I did hear the recordings that Beefheart was on, um, Willie the Pimp you mentioned, and Hot Rats, um, but I, I didn't know who he was listening at the time, and it wasn't until I discovered the Magic Band um, and his own recordings and own productions that I really 
realized what the uh, enormity of Beefheart meant. So if you were seeking this out based on on the knowledge that that you know this this stuff is maybe even farther to the fringes than Zappa's music, you, you must have already kind of developed a taste for for stuff that was a little outside the norm. Yeah, um, I did, and I'm actually very lucky with that. My my dad raised me on classic rock, you know, all all the classics: Zeppelin, Rush, um, Sabbath, a million others. I'm not going to waste time on that. But he also really loved Zappa. He was a huge Zappa head. Um, and he made sure to force me to listen to all of the, the weirdest stuff. Um, and a lot of that I didn't quite grasp as well, but I, I had such, um, a feeling of, of camaraderie with Zappa's creations and the weirdness and the, the strange lyricism that he put into it. When I heard there was something even further down the train, something even, crazier and less understandable um i knew i had to check it out now were you already playing music at this time yeah um i started by playing bass um when i was young i don't remember the exact age probably around 11 um but i i had a a well informed um catalog of listening thanks to my father um and by the time i discovered beefheart i knew how to play an instrument and i knew what i was hearing was people playing instruments but in a very strange fashion right yeah especially coming from from the ba- the perspective of the bass because mark bought boston space playing on this album really does not bear any relation to how a bass is traditionally used in a rock band it's it's something that's come up a lot on on different episodes that he essentially had to develop a new way of approaching the instrument playing it with finger picks playing chords kind of working like a an entirely separate uh guitar rather than you know holding down the root notes as as the bass which is of course not the only thing the bass does but it's it's maybe its primary role in most pop music oh absolutely and to hear bassist that wasn't just uh wasn't just playing the bass line and the rhythm and everything it it took some getting used to um in most popular music you can kind of hone in on the bass and the guitar and what they're doing musically but um yeah it it was ridiculous to to hear this album and then um to find out what went into it just the absolute madness uh at the trout house and uh everything that dawn was was essentially forcing them to do. Um, and yeah, it, it opened some new avenues for me. Um, definitely along with Les Claypool of Primus who took bass playing to the, the forefront of the music and kind of made the guitar more the rhythm. Um, it showed that bass wasn't just a, a rhythm instrument. It really is a, a very large, deep guitar and it can be used, um, in very strange ways. Uh, interesting that you that you mentioned Primus. I, I'm I'm not sure of your age, but but I remember growing up in the '90s and uh, up until I started, I, I, I the gateway for me was through Zappa as well um, because I was playing guitar and someone kind of offhandedly said, "Oh hey, you should check out Frank Zappa. He was a great guitar player." I'm like, "Oh okay," and then I go and check it out. And it's it's just this completely mind-blowing experience of hearing music that was nothing like any of the stuff I was familiar with. 
but but I do also distinctly remember seeing the Jerry was a race car driver video on MTV on one of my marathon <laughs> MTV watches and just ha- having a reaction that that was not entirely dis- just a what the hell am I watching? Yeah, what is oh, what is yeah. he even doing? What kind of instrument is this? It yeah, it was. Um, they they definitely were were one of those signposts to to a different to to a different style of of music than anything that that I was familiar with prior to to our recording. You you mentioned Mr. Bungle. Were they another uh, uh, another pretty big deal group for you? Um, so Mr. Bungle actually came later. Um, from my upbringing and stuff, I I learned more about all of the old musicians and stuff, and it wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't until I really grew into my own and started reaching out that I discovered uh, more modern bands like Mr. Bungle. But I would say without a doubt, Mr. Bungle and Primus, uh, both heavily influenced by Beefheart and by Zappa, um, by the both somewhat melodic and definitely atonal um, compositions that they did. Um, Mr. Bungle was ridiculous. Um, I would almost consider Mr. Bungle an extension of, of Beefheart with some of the stuff that they tried to do and the, the blending of genres um, and some of the R&B and just a, a more modern take on the craziness. I'm only tangentially familiar with Mr. Bungle, I have to say. Now, that, that is um, Mike Patton uh, is, is the vocal. Okay. Yep. All right, then I'm I'm thinking of the right group. Yep. Um, yeah, the the little bits that I've heard, a Zappa influence is is pretty pretty self evident in the the kinds of uh, jarring and abrupt uh, changes from one style of music or one genre to another within the span of uh, a fairly short period of time, and, and also with the uh, with the, the the somewhat twisted sense of humor that that pervades what i've heard what little i've heard of their work I, i'm a, i'm a little more familiar with um fantomas the the uh, patent project with um uh I, I think buzzo from the melvins is in that but uh i believe so yeah but i've only heard a little tiny bit of mr bungle i'll have to check out more of it oh yeah definitely worth a listen um and they've even got some new music out and i've heard whispers of a new album coming oh wow cool uh, so the track that we are discussing today is uh, Wildlife. Um, I let every guest uh, make their selection of a track that they would like to discuss. Um, the pickings were getting a little slimmer uh, by the time I, I sent this out to you. But of, of the tracks I offered you, uh, Wildlife was the one that, that, that you picked. What was it about this track that stands out for you? Um, it To me, it's actually a very different um, Beefheart track. Maybe not as sonically is different, but with the message, um, that he's trying to convey lyrically, very simple, a lot of repetition, not a lot of, of strange phrases and strange things thrown in. It almost seems to be, uh, very straightforward with what, uh, Don, uh, you know, if we're going to be friends here, might as well call him by his first name. Um, <laughs> wanted from from the track it's it's definitely sonically hard-hitting um especially with the the clarinet and the squeakiness that he portrays throughout but the message is is very clear um and it's about going up to the mountain with his wife to not let them take his wild life um and that that was something always very poignant that stood out to me um i am 
very much a, a run to the hills kind of guy. Um, I spent many a year up on top of a mountain, um, actually near where uh, Mr. Don retired. Um, but it it is a an emotion that I'm very familiar with to be living a wildlife, to be going crazy, to feel like they they um, the unknown they um the entity is trying to take it away from you and also wanting that escape the escape into nature which um comes up in his in his music a lot in his competitions he was very earthly very um drummed up for for the savior of the natural world um and showing in this song not just that he wanted to escape with his wildlife but reading into it with his wife um a lot i mean the song starts with the the words uh wildlife along with my wife um and that always struck me because the Beefheart or his magic band most of the compositions and stuff are not very romantic they don't deal with mm -hmm. interpersonal relationships as uh directly i would say but here um, we have him directly saying that he wants to escape with his wife, which during the writing and recording of this album, uh, he did not have, um, at least according to my research, I was, yeah, I, I believe you're correct. He met, he met Jan who, who he married, I think either late in the process of making this record or shortly after the making of this record. Um, from what I've been able to dig up, it was a couple months afterwards, but they were still residing at the Trout House, and most of the band was still there um, at the time that they got married. Um, I I don't know how far into the recording and and, and process they met. Um, I don't know if she was even around when this song was written, but... Um, the fact that he was so so dedicated and spoke of a wife either means, hey, he was already desperately in love with Jan, or he was writing from an alternate point of view, um, and he he knew romantically that he was trying to reach out. This is an unusually uh, direct and plain spoken lyric from from Van Vliet on this record, uh, and as you say, the the there's a, a notable lack of his more surreal turns of phrase or, or the, some kind of inscrutable um, wordplay that marks a lot of the other lyrics. This is, he is quite directly stating that uh, some they've, uh, they got my mother and father and run down all my kin folks. I know I'm next. So he's, he's positing this scenario where those he loves have been, taken from him in some way or shape or form the they got is is pretty indeterminate doesn't mean if they've been killed or kidnapped or brainwashed or or what sort of fate has befallen his his other loved ones but the uh, the as you say his his love of of animals and nature and nature imagery and and posing nature as this kind of idyllic counterpoint to the horrors of humanity uh, shows up throughout his his oeuvre and um in some ways it's it's kind of it's a little bit born of the the kind of hippie back to nature ideas of the late 1960s 
But uh, Van Vliet did have a very genuine love, love of nature and animals and a seemingly very genuine desire to escape from the, the, uh, some of the worst elements of, of society and, and, uh, human interaction. So the, this song feels very heartfelt in a way that, um, other tracks on the album are character sketches or kind of, uh, or, uh, bits of, uh, challenging wordplay or, or surreal poems that don't make any kind of literal sense, but seem to have some kind of, uh, create a, a metaphorical, uh, imagistic, uh, thing that is, um, you can't trace it to anything literal, but it feels real and vibrant in in the language. This song is just a very direct, I'm getting my wife and I'm getting the hell out of here and we're going to go hang out with some bears up, up in the mountains, which <laughs> in in our, our current world climate and world situation sounds more and more appealing to me on a daily basis. Yes. Oh, it definitely does. And I also love the fact that he chose uh, bears. He didn't choose any other woodland creatures. Um, a lot of times we talk about humans being raised by wolves and the such. Like he specifically mentions over and over that uh, he find me a cave and talk them bears and yep. taking me with them. So, uh, yeah, he was. I thought it was Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say he he clearly thought very highly of his gift of gab. If he thought he'd be able to to sway the opinions of some bears into letting him share their their territory. Yeah. Well, uh, apparently um, he didn't have to just think very highly of it. He seemed to have legitimately had the the gift of gab, and uh, although it may have driven away as many people as it attracted, um, all the stories that I've heard of uh captain beefheart mr don um he's been a very imposing uh figure maybe not daunting maybe not like a malicious intimidation but he certainly had a a very distinct way of talking and way of communicating so if anyone could talk himself into a bear's cave uh he was the guy yeah yeah the massive human being that he was that, that's a good point. He he had certainly had no no shortage of charisma. So yeah, if anybody if anybody could could convince the bears that he was he was worth a hang, it would probably be Van Vliet. You mentioned his uh, his horn playing on this track, the 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 squeaks oh, yeah. uh, um, that come in. It's um, I, I think it's a unique uh horn, a bit of horn from him in that it actually he actually seems to be playing kind of a, a little riff that he sort of repeats a couple of times before moving off into, uh, into a freer improvisation The his abilities on the horn are, it's marked more by enthusiasm than by actual, uh, any particular technical skill. Um, yeah. as uh, John French said something along the lines of, uh, his, you know he would he could come up with a great line but he couldn't repeat it his 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 um achilles heel was that he you know he couldn't play this solo again because he didn't really have any idea how he produced what he produced but the the way that the the horn breaks in and does a little call and response with his vocals when he's singing wildlife and it hits that like da 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 riff seems very 
it's if that was pure happenstance that he managed to figure that that riff out at that moment it fits so perfectly it's an uh, it's it really feels like an, a composed element more than his usual uh, kind of freeform saxophone wanderings it it really does um and it's it's something that i i actually really found endearing about the track is that it is sort of call and response um with two different voices um and I always, I always found it sort of ironic that he, uh, he was unable, well, maybe not unable, that might not be the right word, but he did not excel at repetition of um, the things that he created, but at the same time uh, demanded from his band that after these uh, compositions were created, that they play them exactly as they had been created over and over again. Um, and it it was always astounding to me that it was eight months of rehearsal in uh, one house with little food, lots of turmoil, um, and then one day in the studio, and the band was able to knock out, um, I, I believe it was at least 22 tracks um, in six hours, uh, as the story goes. Yep. And then it took, uh, took Mr. Van Vliet several days to record his well to overdub his vocals he wasn't really recording them and um and to to parse out his horn parts um so he had triple if not quadruple the amount of time in the studio that the band had um even though he had been at the house and been rehearsing and teaching them the entire time well according to the band he didn't really rehearse with them all that much uh he would give the parts to French and French would be kind of the, uh, would be the arranger and be the one who, who showed everyone what to play and, and organize the rehearsals. Van Vliet would rarely come in to actually sing over it. He would occasionally come in to yell at them that they weren't doing it right or <laughs> to, uh, begin some kind of psychological torment of one of the members of the band for reasons that, that are unknown. But in terms of actually singing over the music that they were, creating according to to french and harkle road anyway who have i think spoken the most about the experience of all of the magic band of the trout mask band members he he did not rehearse his vocals with the band much if at all and the the lyrics that he is singing over the songs on on the album are not always terribly well considered in terms of how his lyrics and the rhythm and the meter will fit over the music on she's too much for my mirror at the very end you can hear him say shit i don't know how i'm going to get that in there which is (laughs) him expressing some frustration that he's got more lyrics but ran out of song um and i do wonder a little bit on this one with the you mentioned the repetition of um on the outro of the song he, he repeats several times, you know, I'm going up on the mountain for the rest of my life, or they take my life, or they take my wildlife. I'm going up on the mountain. That degree of repetition in his lyrics is unusual on this album. And I do, I do kind of wonder if the song was going on a little longer than he had expected it to, and he was maybe padding it out a little bit. I, I think there may definitely be some truth in that. Um, one of the things that also surprised me about this track, it's one of the more uh, moderately length tracks um, coming in at just over three minutes. Most of the tracks on the album are, are one to three minutes with a few of them stretching 
up to five. So it's not one of the shortest uh, compositions, not one of the shortest tracks, but it has some of the the most repetition lyrically and some of um, the least depth, I, I would say. So he may have been just looking to to uh, orally perform. He just might have wanted to to get his attitude and his voice out over the music um, and didn't really have an idea of where he was going. Yeah, I would agree with that. It, it, it does not, um, it, it, it's not, there's not much more to it lyrically than what is on the surface that he's presenting. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, the directness of the communication is part of what makes the song stick, that it does feel like this very heartfelt, um, yeah you know, things, everything's going horribly wrong. All the people I love are being taken by some force. I'm going to go, you know, try and find this, this safe, natural life with my, with my significant other out in a, out in a cave with the companionship of the animals, which um, t- uh, to some degree in his retirement years, I think he kind of did. He, he wasn't actually living with bears as far as I know, Um uh, <laughs> But he was living with his wife and had pretty limited contact with, uh, with the larger populace. So, in some ways, this song was a little bit of a self fulfilling prophecy. He did, he did manage to get away from it and and make his uh, his final years making his living as a painter and and living a fairly, uh, from what I understand, fairly quiet and and pleasant life with with Jan. Yeah, um, it, it always seemed that way to me too. Um, that when this album came out, how could he have known where and when he was going to retire? Um, I mean, obviously, he got very tired of the wildlife that he and his wife were living, um, and um, mostly because of the onset of MS, um, he was driven to retire in a quiet place that also mm-hmm. happened to be the nation's weed supplier at the time. Um, and he retired to, to Trinidad in Humboldt County, um, which is a place I actually have a lot of familiarity with. I worked there for a few years on a farm. Um, and I know the area very well. Uh, we spoke about Mr. Bungle earlier. They're from Eureka, which is less than 45 minutes South of Trinidad. Um, the whole area is considered Humboldt County because the cities out there are are pretty far between. There's not much in between them. And um, Mr. Don definitely lived up on a mountain. Um, his house was fairly secluded. It wasn't too difficult to reach. But out there in Trinidad in Northern California, which is essentially Southern Oregon, it's very close to the border. Mm-hmm. Um, it's super mountainous. Um, it's called, uh, well, the area around it is called the Redwood Curtain, um, a, a joke on the Iron Curtain that <laughs> separated uh, the Soviet Union. Nobody could see through the Iron Curtain to see what was going on. Well, nobody can really see through the Redwood Curtain and Humboldt County, at least the coastal part, is very removed from the rest of California. It's not like he was living in a populated area. He very much found the solitude that he sought and um, also a lot of weed that probably helped with his MS. I would imagine so, yeah. I, I He spoke several times during the period of the Magic Band stating that he did not do drugs. Um, 
members of the magic band since then have have said that's absolute bs he completely did drugs he (laughs) did acid prior to trot mask replica he he smoked weed he um was continuing to smoke he may have gotten into harder stuff later in in the 1970s there's some people have there's conflicting reports on that and i i don't want to you know cast any aspersions on 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 the man he's he's obviously sadly passed but yeah if you're dealing with the pain of of uh ms which is just so debilitating i've i've have some i have some friends who who suffer from that and it's just the physical difficulties that they experience in getting around can be pretty can can be uh brutal um i'm i'm sure that yeah the it, it probably didn't hurt to to be close to an area where there's a supply of a a fairly ready readily available painkiller oh yes uh, out there it's it's an unlimited supply and um and the the best part about it it was one of uh the first places that i had been to in the u.s where there was such a plentiful supply that it wasn't just looked at as a drug and a way to get high and something that you smoked um there were people turning it into all sorts of topicals and salves um, and remedies, um, different types of extraction, um, way, way back into uh, the history of the U.S. So definitely by the time that he got there, it wasn't just a a teenager's, oh, let's get high kind of thing. It was very much a a medicinal remedy um, that a lot of people do look to for MS, for, for any kind of muscle illness um and also largely a a mental thing um he had a very strange personality he stated a few times that he was documented with paranoid or documented that he was diagnosed with schizophrenia um Mm -hmm. and that may have you know contributed to his his actions and such um with how he tormented and dominated um the musicians in the Trout House um, in LA during the the lead up to the recording of the album, um, and also uh, how difficult it was for him to to deal with people. Um, he he was on record as stating of seeing different conspiracies uh, surrounding him that in in real life probably were not there, but to his perception, absolutely were. Yeah, he he was assuredly a in in his youth anyway a difficult man and uh the there are many accounts in mike barnes's book and john french's book of of his various uh bouts of of paranoia the the one that i read most recently was i I, it it must have been in french's book was that when they were recording um i want to say doc at the radar station one of his later albums that one of the visitors at the studio was Mark Mothersbaugh from, from the group Devo and uh, Van Vliet insisted that the band not play or rehearse while he was around. Cause he was convinced that Mothersbaugh was coming to steal his music. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, that, that definitely comes with the paranoia, but um, also how challenging it must've been to be a musician wanting to be recognized for his compositional and, and musical talent and also that afraid of performing in front of other musicians uh, just because they might be trying to steal his work. Yeah, his he was definitely a, uh, um, composed of contradictions in many different ways. And and the, the degree to which he could be a dictator 
to his band was the the people who met him as fans or uh, you know approached him outside of that environment all talk about how immensely charming and friendly and and kind-natured he could be and there's a there's a kindness in his lyrics that on tracks like you know when when Big Joan sets up where he's he's very clearly singing from the perspective of you know someone who's taking the side of someone who's an outcast or you know, his his love of animals is clearly comes from a place of kindness and tenderness so and you know I've talked a lot on the show about how the band members were treated and the kind of trauma that they they suffered and how they've come to terms with that the difficulty of of dealing with him and I I don't ever want to give the impression that I'm painting him as as some kind of monstrous human he he certainly was exceedingly challenging to work with was behaved in ways that are are rather cult leader like in the the approaches that he took to the band but there was obviously an entire other side to him that that was capable of of great kindness and generosity and um was was obviously a, a restless creative spirit and I, de- I do desperately wish that at some point or another someone had had interviewed his wife jan i would have loved to know i guess she was very quiet kept to herself there's as far as i know no documented interviews with her i would just love to know what her experience of of him was like and and what she was like because uh, they stayed together for for decades yeah. and and obviously they've they had you know he took his wife out 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 to live in the out to live with the bears you know he yeah. he called it all those years ago yeah and and you know um it i definitely don't want to to paint a negative picture of him either but it is very uh it's important to see the truth too and that there were multiple sides to him obviously absolutely um, you've spoken a lot about the musicians and the way he uh tormented them um and i think that's a very accurate word hearing the stories that came out of the house so i won't delve more into that but i'm i'm pretty sure that he and jan um were faithful to each other and until the end i'm very sure that she lived in the same house in Trinidad after he had passed um, and kind of maintained her life a little bit. And um, I, I don't think that she would have stuck around with him all these years after, you know, him becoming um, a rock star or at least his version of a rock star yeah. um, and all of that. If he had just been as, as uh, insane <laughs> Uh, maybe as as pushy and negative um, as he had come off to the band members as he had to her. Um, so I, I definitely feel that there was a, a romantic side to him and there was certain projects and certain aspects that he felt required a much more uh, dictatorial tone. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's possible that some of that came from a... a a bit of an inferiority complex and being the, you know, the one who really could not play an instrument, couldn't read or write music. And so felt the need to impose his personality on, on the people who could in order to, um, in order to, as he, as he put it, go th- work through them. But now I'm just engaging in, in pop psychology, which is, is <laughs> a, a losing battle. Um, so you mentioned uh, working out, uh, in the the Humboldt County area, did you did you ever run across anyone who who had met 
Don or, or knew Don, or did you hear any, any stories about him? Yes. Um, he actually, to, to the people that knew who he was, not everyone in Humboldt County, um, gives a fuck about, or sorry, <laughs> gives a hoot about, uh, Captain Beefheart. And his it's career. fine. You can swear. Oh, good. Fuck, fuck, fuck. Um, <laughs> no, so the, not everyone in Humboldt County, um, are, huge Mr. Bungle fans or huge Beefheart fans. A lot of them are just farmers that mm-hmm. uh, want to grow their crop. But the people that did know him definitely had a reverence for him. Um, and up in Trinidad, um, there is a beautiful harbor. Um, it's a very small harbor. It's not a, a big docking station. But the places that have views of the ocean and of the bay um, are really incredible. And I've met several artists who used to go out there and paint and would occasionally stumble across um, Mr. Don out there painting. Um, and uh, like he was a big artist, a big painter towards the end of his life. Um, unfortunately, he destroyed a lot of what he created if he didn't find it immediately appealing to him. Mm-hmm. Um so I've I've heard a little bit of his artistic struggle, um, and um, I was lucky enough to sit down with one artist um, who's actually still out in Humboldt today, um, who went down to the bay every morning, and most of the time would not see anyone there. And one morning he came down, and someone had beat him there. And as the case with many artists. Um, yeah, they're not a very gregarious bunch. When you see somebody <laughs> painting and doing your work, you kind of leave them alone. You know, you set up your little easel, you paint your own thing. But several times, um, the painter heard exclamations from the man uh, 20, 30 feet down the shoreline, obviously trying to paint something. Um, and by the end of it, the other painter had destroyed his work of art. Um, and it wasn't until he started walking, well, you know, eh, walking is a strong term for someone with MS, but he, sure. he did manage to get around um, to, to get back to where uh, his mobility enhanced him. Um, my, my friend did not realize that it was Captain Beefheart himself um, who had been out there just toiling and toiling, trying to create something and um, seemingly ultimately failing and destroying his artwork right there on the shoreline. That, that ap- I have not heard that about him destroying his work, but that does kind of track with the degree to which he... Um, <sighs> How best to put this? Not exactly a perfectionist, but someone who most definitely had a set idea of what he wanted and would react with a certain degree of violent frustration if it was not expressed in the way that he wanted it to be expressed. I mean, at that point, he was taking it out on his canvas rather than taking it out on on fellow musicians. But the... It seems like the impulse of this isn't what I want, and so I'm I'm frustrated and angry is, is... is still there, and I'm I'm not a visual artist, but I can I can certainly understand that that level of frustration. Uh, have you seen any of his um, of his visual art in person? Uh, yes, actually, there are still a few pieces in Humboldt County. Um, I hope they're still there. There was a few rotating um, little art exhibits, and um, though not much of his art exists, and though it was not. Um, 
extremely poignant, I would say. It wasn't a, a very grasping artwork. There was a couple of his uh, pieces still up there when I was in Humboldt County. Very cool. I, I was, I've never seen one in person. I have a print of, of one of his paintings. Um, but I was speaking with someone who had been to the uh, Michael Werner Gallery in New York, which is, I think, where a lot of his work was was kept. And, and he was talking about the, the massive scale of some of the paintings really surprised him, that it, it was like these gigantic uh, wall-sized murals, which kind of surprised me as well. I didn't realize that he was, was creating work that was, pre- pre- I wouldn't say abstract, but definitely abstracted. Um, yeah. n- not a lot of, uh, you know, photorealism at, at work in his, in his paintings, but that he was working on that scale. I thought I found surprising. He, he gathered, uh, gained quite a bit of success as a, as a painter in his later years, certainly more monetarily successful than, than he was as a musician. Yeah. Which, um, I think blew his mind as much as all of his, <laughs> uh, loyal followers these days. Um, it seems insane to, for someone who, uh, had albums on the charts and has several albums and you must listen to these works of art before you die and top of 500 albums of all time. Like he's, always placed in the top hundreds of those but he had much more six well much more monetary success um, which is a good way of putting it with his paintings um and and i the scale i i think that the the large paintings and the scale that he was doing on appealed much more to him um and his psyche and the things that he did and the much smaller paintings, the more average sized, I guess I should say, um, he felt more at odds with, um, and hmm, not as many of those survived. That's interesting. I, I have a friend who's a painter, and and she has has occasionally lamented that larger scale works that she wants to do are you're essentially committing to creating something that's probably never going to sell because no one wants to buy a painting <laughs> that enormous. Whereas if you're actually trying to trying to uh, make money seems the wrong way of putting it. You know, have any kind of monetary remuneration for your work. You have to concentrate on smaller pieces. Definitely seems to be the case. Um, There are still a few giant dollies that are around, but you don't really see those uh, recreated into smaller portraits hanging on people's walls. It's more just his standard stuff. Um, A lot of the same with uh, Van Vliet and and I would say a lot of other artists. I think your friend really has it down pat. Um, the larger works can be much more stunning, much more artistic, but they don't bring in the revenue. The the very first time I saw Jackson Pollock in person at the the um, in um, New York, I, I I felt very uh, I felt like a real bumpkin because I walk into this room and I see this painting, and my first reaction is not like. Oh, how beautiful! Or you know, oh, what a remarkable piece! It was holy shit. That's huge. Yeah. I had I had no idea that his paintings were done on this massive scale. So, yeah, I probably didn't look like the sharpest tool in the shed when I was walking around that that museum. But uh, yeah. it it was it was I was pretty impressed. I'll put it that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at least you've seen it. You know, um, there are a lot of people in this world that that wouldn't even feel strange thinking about it that just pass over artwork um, and wouldn't take a second thought or a second glance. And I think it's really uh, people that, that like art, like Captain Beefheart, they, they 
sonically associated with a lot of the the visual artwork and a lot of the artistic stuff that's created more than just something um melodic or repetitive or pleasing to the ears so on on that note you are you are still making music are you still primarily a bassist or or have you switched to other instruments as well um i now play a wide variety of things um including the theremin which uh, i have been playing much more recently i can make really god-awful screeching noises on a theremin but i've never in a billion (laughs) years would be able to say that i play one uh it it can be a very daunting task it is one of the more challenging instruments uh and the only instrument you play without touching it yeah for for anyone who's listening who doesn't know what a theremin is which if you're listening to a captain beefheart podcast you probably know what a theremin is but just just in case you don't search up some youtube videos of of people playing it and it's used on uh, electricity on on Beefheart's "Safe as Milk" as as well as famously on "Good Vibrations" by the Beach Boys. It's a uh, the the kind of electric sine wave sounding instrument that is played by waving your hands through the air without touching it. And uh, in my hands, uh, I I don't own one. I've I've played my friends, and in my hands, it's really little more than a very very expensive way to annoy your cat. <laughs> I couldn't have put it better myself. Uh, so your your current uh, musical endeavor is um, th- it's people corrupting people. Do I have that right? Uh, yes, you do. PCP out of Denver, Colorado. Excellent. And I'm sure you guys are not uh, able to play live shows exactly at the moment. But are are you working on music currently? Uh, yes, we are. We um, we try to put out two albums a year. We've been pretty prolific. We usually have a release date on four twenty, um, and then we make sure to hit nine eleven every year. Um, <laughs> well, those I, are easy to remember. Yeah, exactly. Never forget. Um, we were actually founded on nine eleven in two thousand fourteen, so it's uh, one of our little homages that we like to do. Um, but yeah, if I if I could plug them, people corrupting people, PCP from Denver, Colorado. Um, we've got all our music for free online at pcpsucks.com, and we've done a bunch of live streams, and we're hoping to uh, get back out there and play when we're allowed to. Excellent. I will make sure that the uh, that the link for that um, is included in the the episode data uh, with this particular episode. But do you do you feel that that um, that Beefheart and Zappa remain an influence on your on your music making? Absolutely, a hundred percent. Once you've discovered this world of of creativity it's hard to go back and just create um cold play sounding albums <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it really does change how you how you hear everything else and how you approach music um so when darren hosts the show he will usually rate the song um at the end of the episode uh, out of five I say on every episode, I rate every track on this album five out of five, not because I love them all equally, but because I don't really feel like you can adequately compare them to anything. I feel like they're just so completely unique that that they are all just five out of five for being themselves. Um, but if you would like to rate the track out of five, you are you are quite welcome to do so. And if you have anything else that you would like to uh, to plug or signal boost mr ryan the floor is yours um i i agree that i would find it almost impossible to rate any of these tracks uh anything except for five out of five it's not really like uh captain b for it or his magic band excelled in creating filler um everything <laughs> they did they made sure that it was it, it was an exclamation point that they put something on it um 
And uh, a lot of people have um, felt a little weird that um, Wildlife was included as the B-side of um, the only single off of Trout Mask, um, which was uh, Pachugo Cadaver. Um, I think it was released in France by Zappa at first, um, but I I really love it. I think it's a great track off the album, and um, the fact that it was a self-fulfilling prophecy really really kind of spurred it up a notch. Um, other than that, I just want to give a quick shout out to uh, IO and Dead Girl. What's up, guys? I uh, appreciate everything you do. Um, and a shout out to, to you, uh, Mr. Joel, for, for stepping in and, and creating this podcast. I know it must have been daunting to go through a, a double album of uh, Beefheart's wonderful, mysterious tracks. Um, but I, I look forward to hearing the rest of the episodes as well. It's a very touching piece of uh, music in my heart, and I know a lot of other people are very influenced by it as well. Well, thank you for that. I, I really appreciated it. it. It has been a little daunting, and yet at the same time, I mean, touching is really a really good word that, that you used for for how how intimately people connect to this to this record and just being able to sink into this music and talk with with fascinating people like yourself about the different songs on this album and just completely disconnect from everything else that is going on at the moment to i'm i won't name too many things specifically to date this podcast but let's just say it's not very good um yeah so it's it's been a balm to my soul definitely to be able to talk about this uh, ad infinitum uh, if you would like to follow Track by Track on Twitter, we are at underscore Track by Track. If you want to follow me on Twitter or on Instagram, I am at Joel A. Bakker. That's B-A-K-K-E-R. Uh, Mr. Atlas Ryan, thank you again so much for your time. Thank you, Joel. And thank you for listening. I'm going up on the mountain, find me a cave and talk to bears to take me in. Wildlife is a man's best friend. Wildlife. Wildlife. <laughs>